Conversations. Okay. Hello, everybody, and welcome back to another episode of Med Conversations. You've probably forgotten about us, but it feels good to be back on the air. It's nice. It feel good. It feels feel very good. I don't feel fresh. I'm tired all the time. What about you, Vic? <laughs> nah, having a 10-month-old baby, I'm pretty rejuvenated every moment of the day. <laughs> well, let's see if we can rejuvenate our listeners' minds with some um, high blood pressure knowledge now. I know you're all probably wondering, what happened That's to the third episode of hypertension? Will it ever <laughs> Will it ever get released? Well, we're here to answer your prayers. The answer is yes, but probably of quite poor quality. And here it comes. Um, so it's me, Rahul. And who are you? And I'm Beck. Yeah, Beck, who you all remember and love. And we're going to talk to you about hypertension part three. Um, so I think in the first episode of hypertension, we spoke about the pathophysiology and physiology uh, of hypertension, I'm pretty sure. Uh, and then in the second episode, <laughs> we spoke about drugs. And so in this confusingly outlined uh, three-part series on hypertension, we're now going to talk about the clinical applications of hypertension. So how to actually measure blood pressure, how to assess someone who's got high blood pressure, and then how to move into treatment. And we're going to do a little uh, bit at the end, which we've got Beck here as a specialist for, talking about secondary causes of hypertension. So that is cause of high blood pressure that aren't just your guard variety, quote unquote, essential hypertension, but actually have, say, a hormonal cause or in some cases um, issues with the kidneys. But let's not give it all away too early. Um, do you want to kick us off with a case, Rebecca? Yeah, I can do that. I can introduce you to Mountain, our 52-year-old mystical healer who presents to you for investigation and management of hypertension after her tea leaves revealed that without evidence-based medicine, she would likely have a stroke or AMI before Jupiter's 79 moons made their next revolution. True story. I was uh, very much doubting um, Beck's research for this case, but Jupiter does actually have 79 moons, of which most of which are unnamed, I think. So um you're looking for a little piece of the cosmos get in there um all right well now that we've heard about mountain um should we talk about some definitions and how to measure blood pressure um so i guess blood pressure you know we all know it's a risk or hopefully all know it's a risk for cardiovascular disease um, and there's a pretty graded association between both systolic blood pressure and diastolic blood pressure and an increased risk of cardiovascular disease cardiovascular disease being a pretty broad top um, term here encompassing stroke peripheral vascular um, disease, such as, you know, peripheral arterial disease, as well as your classic uh, myocardial infarctions or heart attacks. Um, Maybe, maybe there's some bias in there in my (laughs) perception of that. Um, But um, yeah. So if you were going to pick one of those, Beck, I mean, you know, I'm sure everyone knows about the many, many different types of blood pressure measurements you can get um, and how fancy you can be with these things if you're in the ICU, but which one would you pick as having the best association with cardiovascular risk? Yeah, so the, the systolic blood pressure compared with the diastolic or the pulse pressure or the MAP, it's the systolic that is the easiest number to remember and also has the most durable association with those kind of cardiovascular conditions. Mm. So I guess the fact that everyone kind of just talks about systolic blood pressure and ignores the other ones by and large, except in the ICU setting is, or in a cardiology setting is pretty um, pretty okay because that's the one that has the is most sort of um, durably associated, what does that mean? Robustly associated in studies um, with long-term cardiovascular risk. Um, so interestingly, yeah, I mean, I think, and I don't know about your experience, Beck, and you know, some of the interns and residents out there might be able to echo this feeling, but um, 
you know, I think in hospital, we often see someone who has a blood pressure of 150 or 155 and systolic, and we kind of ignore it and go, ah, oh, whatever. We don't even cast our eyes in that part of the chart. It's not of 80. <laughs> exactly. It's not 80, so it's fine. But what does a 20 millimeter higher systolic blood pressure than normal actually give you back in terms of your risk of cardiovascular events? Yeah. So I think this is an absolutely wild statistic that I didn't know until you put it on a PowerPoint slide in front of me. <laughs> but what it says on this PowerPoint slide in front of me that you have written is that a 20 millimeter higher systolic blood pressure or a 10 millimeter higher diastolic is associated with doubling in the risk of death from stroke, heart disease or vascular disease. Yeah. And look, I guess when we say double the risk, like if you take someone who's otherwise healthy and you know, it has a low absolute risk, doubling their risk may not be a lot. But this is uh, all of these things. Blood pressure is a slow burn. And, um, you know, this is we're looking at people over 20, 30 years here and, um, and finding out, you know, working out their risk of stroke. So all, you know, blood pressure as we get older, other things, as I said, start to come into the picture, like other diseases and, um, and your age itself. And so blood pressure as a dominant risk factor starts to fall away and then those other things start to become more problematic. But I think, you know, it's because it's so prevalent, it's such an important risk factor. And actually, if Darbo was here, I'm sure he'd be um, going on and on about this because it is the biggest risk factor for stroke by, by far. So, um, yeah, I think it's important to keep in mind. Now, we touched on some of those uh, unusual blood pressure measurements or the, you know, the range of blood pressure measurements available out there. Do you want to run us through some definitions? If I, if I throw you some terms back, you can give me some definitions for blood pressure um, measurements. Yeah. Yeah. That's just because you don't want to be the one to try and pronounce Karotkov. <laughs> Absolutely not. Um, so systolic blood pressure, since you brought up our friend Karotkov. First Karotkov sound. Yeah. So, I mean, I suppose there is some physician out there who's probably still wearing three bow ties who's able to tell you about all of this. But in my mind, this <laughs> is just when you start to hear the do, do, do of the pulse um, with your stethoscope as you deflate the blood pressure cuff. Or if you're using an automatic blood pressure cuff, carotid cough just rolls over in his grave. Um, <laughs> <laughs> so what about a diastolic blood pressure back? Yeah, so um, obviously you're counting the carotid cough sounds and you get to the fifth one. Yeah. And so I, again, pragmatically, when I stop hearing the doof, doof, doof of the pulse um, or of the reminiscing of the techno festival I went on the weekend, <laughs> then I know I've reached the diastolic blood pressure. What about the pulse pressure moving into some more unfamiliar territory? Yeah, so that's just that's just the difference between the systolic and the diastolic. So SBP minus DBP. That's right. Yeah. Okay. And then your uh, mean arterial pressure back? Yeah, the MAP. So this is your diastolic pressure plus one third of the aforementioned pulse pressure, which I've never quite yeah. understood. Do, do you know why, like where that comes from? Yeah. So if you want to work out your mean arterial pressure, you obviously want to know what the average pressure is during the whole cardiac cycle, because obviously your blood pressure is changing as your heart contracts and relaxes uh, in systole and diastole. Now the heart spends roughly one third of its time in systole and two thirds of its time in diastole. And so this calculation accounts for that and you end up with you know, what the mean arterial pressure is. And yeah, for whatever that makes reason, so much sense. Thank you. Yeah. Yeah. The ICU guys really love to use this number as their marker of end organ perfusion. I actually don't know. I haven't looked into their studies and why they do that, but generally in their realm, a mean arterial pressure of above you know, 60, 65 means that they're, they're going to not ask you questions about inotropes and, um, and vasopressors. So that's and when I'm happy. They can still get their morning coffee. Yeah. That's right. Yeah. Um, there's the mid blood pressure, which kind of ignores that whole physiology we're talking about. So it doesn't 
look at the fact that you spend more time in diastole than systole. Um, and that's just the but, sum. It's literally the average of the. Yeah, aspect. but I'll be honest, I've never heard of anyone using that. Have you ever I, come across that? No, when I came across this um, slide from the joint hypertension guidelines, I saw it, but I've never heard of it in my life before. So delete that from your memory. Um, but now you're going to have double trouble remembering what the mean blood pressure is because I put that in. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> um, so I think one thing that's really worth talking about in uh, Beck is our resident general medicine physician, not a general medicine resident, but a resident general medicine physician. Um, He's also uh, not a physician or a resident. <laughs> <laughs> Uh, what are you, Beck? <laughs> Maybe you could tell us about how blood pressure interacts with other risk factors and how we think about that. Yeah, so I think this is a bit like that whole story of you know caffeine increasing your risk of heart attacks because actually people who drink coffee are more likely to smoke. So basically, there's a there's quite a lot of crossover of risk factors with patients who have hypertension also being more likely to have dyslipidemia, be obese, have diabetes. So I think that the statistics are 16% of people with hypertension are smokers. 50% of those with hypertension are obese. 60% have dyslipidemia. 15 to 20% have diabetes and 16% have CKD. So they've got other risk factors for cardiovascular disease and it's all kind of additive. I'm very confused about how specific I was about how many smokers <laughs> there are who have high blood pressure and how many people with chronic kidney disease. 16. It's not 15. No, it's 16. But then with diabetes, it's 15 to 20%. It's amazing. <laughs> <laughs> so, yeah, my um, hyper-specificity aside, the actual message of all of that, those statistics, was really that um, when you're dealing with someone who has high blood pressure, and we'll come back to this again later in the therapy section, it's important to screen and manage the other modifiable risk factors that you have there. So smoking, diabetes, high cholesterol, obesity, all of these things roll together to uh, cause the things that we're actually concerned about, like vascular events, whether they're in the brain, peripheral arteries or heart. Um, and so the other thing is that it's probably a non-linear relationship between high blood pressure and the more of these you add on and your ultimate risk. So they sort of compound to create an even higher risk when they're together. So um, I don't know. It's, I guess it's a bit like the Teenage Mutant Ninja Turtles. When they're all together, it's sort of the teamwork is more powerful than just the sum of the four of them. So, I mean, I hope that was a relatable uh, yeah, analogy. Yeah, it's, it's, like, <laughs> it's like that. <laughs> um, so, yeah, Beck, I mean, if we think about, I use the word modifiable risk factors there. Um, can you tell me what are the actual modifiable things there? Because it's all well and good to list that the patient is, you know, I often ask medical students, go, what are the risk factors for X, Y, and Z? And they say male and, you know, they're old. And I'm like, yeah, yeah, true, I guess. And when you're trying to form a diagnosis, those are helpful. But in practical terms, the fact that the patient's 83 doesn't really help me fix them. Yeah, yeah, yeah. So the modifiable risk factors, and I think most people know this, but it's good to just put them together in a list to remember. So um, smoking, so that's either current cigarette smoking or secondhand smoking, diabetes, dyslipidemia, hypercholesterolemia, being overweight or obese, physical inactivity and an, an unhealthy diet. Yeah, spot on. And then you can do something about yeah, and then, you know, sort of in this category, there's a few who are in this like half-half category, like CKD. Maybe there's some modifiable things about that. Um, obstructive sleep apnea is something I always ask about because my feeling is that you can probably improve their blood pressure by getting them on appropriate therapy by reducing people who have OSA, i.e. people who snore a lot, a very highly turned up sympathetic drive 
Um, and so that partially contributes to their vascular tone, which you know constricts their blood vessels, decreases the cross-sectional area, increases the resistance, and thereby increases the blood pressure. Um, so you know if you can hopefully reverse some of that hyperstimulation, then maybe you can drop their blood pressure a bit. So you know we've talked a lot about um, risk factors and definition and the problems with blood pressure, but what what is a high blood pressure, Beck? Yeah, so it's actually anything that's over. 120 systolic and 80 diastolic the normal cutoff is pretty pretty strict really yeah yeah so there's been a bit of movement around this in these from the 2017 uh, hypertension guidelines um so they shifted the bar down such that 120 to 129 is considered an elevated blood pressure um, and above 130 or above 80 is considered hypertension stage one once you get above 141 or 90 diastolic then you're in hypertension stage two. And then we'll go into some stuff later about hypertensive crisis. But so really that means any of your patients who have a hundred blood pressure, 135 consistently are hypertensive. And they, they, they fall into 25 even. Well, yeah, they're elevated blood pressure, which I don't know, I guess they don't use the term hypertension yet, but all of this was based around oh, some very, right. yeah, some very large studies, um, a very large study in largely that called sprint, which showed that there is actually still a risk to being in this category of 120 and above. Um, and you're already, you were starting to see some long-term increase of a risk of stroke or coronary heart disease. Um, so, you know, your hazard ratio for either of those things is, can be up to 1.5 times as likely if you're in the 120 to 129 region versus less than 120. And so there was kind of this shift. And, and interestingly, I remember I was actually at the American Heart Association when these guidelines came out at the conference and, um, even if around there, people were talking about how this was just another move by big pharma to help sell more, you know, hypertension meds. But it was pretty clearly based on this huge investigator-led trial that had just been released. Um, <laughs> <but it's, laughs> Who paid for it, though? Yeah, that's a great question. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I'm pretty sure they all worked for free. Um, so, yeah. And then, uh, you know, if you use the old cutoff of 140 and 90, about 90% of adults who are currently age 45 develop high blood pressure at some point in the next 40 years. So essentially, basically everyone in the population who lives long enough gets high blood pressure. So it's important. And that ties back to why it's such a dominant risk factor and something we think about so much in, in stroke and in heart disease. Mm. And something that we'll talk more about later when we get on to treatment, but um, these these uh, blood pressure cutoffs that we're talking about don't necessarily need to trigger action if you're an intern working in hospital and these are inpatient readings. So um, we're, we're just going over what's normal, what's elevated, but uh, it's more thinking about the, um, the outpatient kind of setting. Yeah, I think that's right. And, you know, very often people, I, I was sort of, sort of talking about how we ignore blood pressures in hospital and, and as long as they're not 80, we're happy. Um, but I guess at the same time, a lot of the people we see in hospital are acutely unwell and maybe having a response to that. So whether it's an infection and they've got sympathetic drive, sort of the last thing you want to do if they're, someone's having an acute infection is to try and bring their blood pressure down to 120 aggressively because you want to prevent their long-term risk of stroke. So, you know, all of this stuff we're dealing with is long-term big picture thinking, but, you know, we need people to survive their hospital admissions first so that we can have that style of thinking be beneficial to them. Um, so, you know, coming back to how do we actually measure blood pressure? Um, this is something that the physician's exam likes to sort of focus on. Um, if you're going to do a manual blood pressure, what are some of the tips back that you can use to make sure that you've got an accurate blood pressure? 
Yeah, and all this stuff is super theoretical. I've never seen anyone do it in reality, but apparently it makes a huge difference, so maybe we should. Um, firstly, sitting the patient down quietly for five minutes before taking the blood pressure. Um, I think Tchaikovsky is the preferred uh, <laughs> background music. No, but, but having the patient sit down so they haven't just walked into the consulting room or anything like that, supporting the limb that you're using to measure the blood pressure, so avoiding that, um, that biceps curl action so that might be a pillow on the on the examination table and i think that's an important one because very often patients will try and assist you in the clinic room and put their arm out you know they're trying to be helpful and put their arm near you but theoretically that actually causes muscle contraction and will give you a falsely elevated blood pressure yeah and the blood pressure cuff should be at about heart level and it should be the correct size so again this is just in a dreamland where you can actually find the uh find the cuffs that fit i was just in a clinic a few hours ago where the cuff was the wrong size and i fussed around for ages getting a cuff that was the right size got that started to um take the blood pressure measurement and realized there were two one centimeter holes in the tubing for the, <laughs> of the blood pressure cuff. so we're really finessing the, the uh the small print here but yes have the patient sitting quietly support the limb cuff at heart level and use the correct size cuff and and what actually is the correct size cuff like how do you how do you know that it yeah, so the bladder, the bit that inflates, should cover 80% of the arm in the sort of circumferential um, bit. So, you know, yeah, the classic is you find someone who's you know, a 83-year-old lady who doesn't have on the tea and toast diet who has the overweight obese cuff on and it's wrapped around her arm three times um, and, yeah. you know, she's getting these wildly inaccurate readings. So, yeah, that, that would be what you'd be looking for. Um and yeah, like I said, when you're actual auscultating, you're listening for the onset of the first sound and then the disappearance of all sounds. You know, don't worry about the um, the orchestra that's going on from Korotkov on the way down. Um, <laughs> uh, but tell me about so you know what about automatic blood pressures? Are they are they good, Beck? Should we be doing them? They seem to be the you know looked down upon by every doctor in the hospital. They they are, and and look, I think um, they're really better than we give them credit for, and that tendency that we have to take a, a manual blood pressure because we don't like what we see with the automatic blood pressure is probably less helpful than it seems. So there was actually a cluster randomized trial of 550 patients that was published in the British Medical Journal. And it showed that, uh, that really automatic blood pressure is just as good, if not better than manual, because it takes out a lot of the variation between the observers and their ability to recognize the different Kuroshkov sounds. <laughs> um, so, so, so really automatic is fine. Um, and in fact, the gold standard blood pressure measurement is that when you've got this patient sitting quietly for five minutes, you're not actually in the room and the automatic blood pressure um, cuff is on a timer and you're not really required in the consultation at all. The robot will figure out how to treat the hypertension <laughs> and... Um, yeah, you can go home, pour yourself a pina colada and kick, kick back by the pool. <laughs> so let's move back to our case uh, of Mountain. So Mountain nervously lifts her gossamer shawl to allow you to apply an appropriately sized uh, cuff while her arm rests at heart level on her BMI 25 frame. While the machine works out the numbers and does some calculations uh, using an abacus, you arrange your face into one of professional but empathetic blankness while considering whether you'll make that Ottolenghi eggplant dish for dinner. Just as you conclude that Urfa chili flakes are too hard to find, the numbers flash up on the screen. 185 on 78. Pretty high. That's bad. 
not good, not good. Um, so we're just going to talk a little bit more about some other methods you can use to sort of uh, investigate someone's blood pressure beyond just clinic readings. Um, so yeah, all the major clinical trials on blood pressure, blood pressure lowering, the effect of blood pressure lowering on outcomes use clinic blood pressure readings essentially. But there is this other thing called ambulatory blood pressure monitoring. It's usually done through your local friendly cardiology department. And um, essentially we'll put a blood pressure cuff, an automated blood pressure cuff on a patient's arm. And they'll carry this little machine around and it'll just regularly check their blood pressure uh, throughout the day and night, which I'm sure it's extremely annoying, but um, yeah, it will do it every 15 to 30 minutes or so during the day and every 15 minutes to one hour during the night whilst the patient sleeps. And, and you get just a whole bunch of data from an ambulatory blood pressure monitor, which people, hypertension specialists, presumably know what to do with. Um, but I find myself very often looking for that systolic blood pressure, like we're talking about. <laughs> but what sort of measures do you get from the ambulatory blood pressure, uh, Beck? Yeah, so you get the mean BP, both the mean over the whole period and the mean for the night versus for the daytime. Mm -hmm. And that helps you also determine what the day-to-night blood pressure ratio is. And what, what are you looking for there with that ratio? Yeah, so the normal response is to have a bit of dipping of the blood pressure, which is presumably related to sort of one, your circadian rhythm, but also the autonomic nervous system and, and not being sort of um, having your sympathetic system triggered during the day. Um, so you should see that. And a loss of that means that there's inappropriate you know, activation of the sympathetic system or, or a loss of that natural reflex, which is associated with um, uh, poorer cardiovascular outcomes. Right, and that's something that you more likely see in obstructive sleep apnea, is that right? Yeah, I'm guessing you probably would, actually, because, I mean, those people are essentially awake all night um, and awake and not breathing, like so me. even more. So, yeah. <laughs> um, or like me, I probably have obstructive sleep apnea, if you ask my girlfriend. <laughs> um, you have a and then... girlfriend? <laughs> Everyone's just logged off. <laughs> um, except for my girlfriend who is listening to this hopefully even closer um so yeah we there's also an early morning blood pressure surge pattern where people and beck you can probably tell us more about this cortisol does something in the mornings i've heard um makes a cup yeah, of coffee there's more there's more else. of it yeah so you get this cortisol you wake up you get the stress hormones and your blood pressure surges up in the morning and then you can also work out blood pressure variability. And I suppose the way that helps me from a practical point of view is if I get someone who, well, the way I like to use it is for people who are difficult with treatment. So I think that maybe we're over-medicating them in the morning and they're under-medicated at night and I'm not getting a full appreciation. So when they come into the clinic, everything either looks good or looks really bad, but I want to know what's actually going on at home. Um, and, you know, if someone's having falls, but also hypertensive, it might help you also identify if they're having real big fluctuations in their blood pressure throughout the day, which might mean that you have to draw back on therapy. So it can help you sort of tailor therapy there as well. Um, as a rule, and it's kind of ties to what Beck was talking about earlier, ambulatory blood pressure monitors tend to be lower than the office ones, and that's because of a phenomenon that we're about to talk about. So Beck, why don't you tell us about that phenomenon? All right, so that's called white coat hypertension. And I think everyone's probably quite familiar with this. This is where the blood pressure in the clinic is elevated, but the normal readings outside of clinic as measured by a, a, an ambulatory blood pressure monitor or, or just the reality of what the blood pressure is, is lower. So this is significant when the systolic or diastolic blood pressure is more than 20 or 10, respectively, millimetres of mercury, higher compared to the blood pressures measured at home is there any increase in cardiovascular disease 
Um, only minimally. So yeah, I guess, you know, coming back to our blood pressure, the 24 hour phenomenon, you know, if someone's only got an elevated blood pressure in the clinic, they hopefully don't spend most of their time in the clinic unless they're a general medicine physician. And so they're not actually exposed to all of that increased cumulative blood pressure risk. Um, and so they're probably more similar to normal tensive patients. I guess where it comes in handy is to know that you can sort of not keep aggressively pushing medications on someone who probably has a normal blood pressure most of the time. So it's avoiding side effects from medications, avoiding over-medication. But there is a related phenomenon or a similar sort of inverse phenomenon called masked hypertension. And this is where people have normal office readings of their blood pressure, but at home they've got hypertensive readings. And those people, as you might imagine, do have similar cardiovascular risk to those with sustained hypertension because they are always experiencing that blood pressure that you're not recording in the clinic. But not only that, they're probably also not getting medicated properly because when they come to your clinic and you do your one blood pressure every six months, which determines what tablets this person's going to be on for the rest of their life, um, they have normal blood pressure and so don't get appropriately medicated. And so these are some of the areas where either giving, recommending the patient gets a home blood pressure monitor themselves or referring them for a 24-hour ambulatory blood pressure monitor can help you work out um, your treatment goals and your treatment strategy. So if we move into, yeah, if we move a little bit into assessing uh, blood pressure um, in terms of someone who you've now found to be hypertensives, uh, I guess, what are your, your goals when you're looking at someone whose blood pressure you want to assess and whose hypertension you want to assess? Yeah, so I guess there's, there's really three key things here. The first one is, are they hypertensive and sort of defining that? Um, the second is, is the hypertension complicated? And the third is, is this secondary hypertension as opposed to essential hypertension? Yeah, I think that's a good good framework. And so now we can sort of put the history into that and, and understand with each of our questions what it is what we're trying to elucidate. So I think, as you said, the first thing to do is to really work out a bit about the blood pressure itself. Um, and you know, keep in mind that this is one of those things, um, and I think I've said this in the previous podcast, that often people say, do you have hypertension? The patient says yes or no, and, um, and that's the end of the story. But there is a lot here, and, and you def definitely don't have to do this for every patient, but there are some people, you know, like Mountain, who rock up blood pressure for 180, who you want to see if you can understand that a little bit more, because this could be sort of a long-term life or death thing that gets ignored and just written down as hypertension and, and doesn't get properly addressed. So starting with the blood pressure itself. Um, what sort of questions might you ask about the blood pressure, Beck? Yeah, so how, how long have they had high blood pressure for? And one of the things you're looking for here is if they say that they've had high blood pressure since very early in life, so prepubescent hypertension, you need to think about a search for secondary causes. Yeah, that's right. So really long-standing high blood pressure, even from you know like 20s and early 30s, it's quite unusual to have significant hypertension at that age in the absence of other risk factors. So that always triggers my mind for something else going on here. Um, you can ask about their previous blood pressure levels. So has something changed now and their blood pressure has gone up or have they always had really bad blood pressure control? So, you know, and, and sometimes you also get a bit of an idea about adherence from that question. You know, you ask someone who's got a blood pressure 170, okay, well, what was it like when you were with your GP or what's it like at home? And they say, oh, I've never checked it or I don't go to my GP. And then automatically you're sort of starting to get the picture of this person and, and what it is that you're going to need to do to help them. So what, what else could you ask about blood pressure and its previous management? Yeah, so it, as you said, previous management. Um, so it, it's, <laughs> always, it's always good to, to find out what medications they've been on before, um, both to, to get an idea of what's worked and what hasn't, but also what kind of um, side effects they've had 
side effects both tell you they tell you um, whether they might tolerate those agents again in the future, but they also can give you some hints. So if somebody says that their renal function got much worse after they started an ACE inhibitor or an angiotensin receptor blocker, uh, then then you might think of a, like a bilateral renal artery stenosis. Yeah, and just a note on side effects here. I think for some reason, more with blood pressure medications than anything else, I find that um, people will say they're allergic to something when they've just had a side effect from it. So it's worth digging in if someone says they're allergic or they can't take that, just finding out why. One, because as Beck said, sometimes it's a clue to the underlying diagnosis of what's causing the hypertension. So yeah, renal artery stenosis and ACE inhibitors. But also, yeah, um, you know, the amount of times I've had people say I'm allergic to calcium channel blockers and the reason is because they get peripheral edema, which is a known side effect of, of calcium channel blockers. Yeah, it means you probably don't want to try it, but it doesn't mean that, you know, in a critical situation, you can't use it. It's just, to, you know, maybe you can dial back the dose or try one that has less of that side effect. Um, there is this sort of, when you're digging through all this history, there is this definition of resistant hypertension, which basically means that the patient's been on three hypertensive antihypertensives at the same time at a reasonable dose and it's still got high blood pressure. And that's important because that will make you think then of certain diagnoses, like we're talking about secondary causes of hypertension that we'll come to later. One of the key things there is not just three different classes of antihypertensives, but that one of those classes needs to be a diuretic. So they've got to be on their hydrochlorothiazide plus the you know amlodipine and um, perindopril or, or whatever the case may be. Never hydrochlorothiazide, though, Beck, if you'd listen to the other podcast, <laughs> we always go for chlorothaladone or adapamide so the patient can only go to one pharmacy in all of Melbourne uh, to go and get their medications. Um, it's all so, because everyone's been listening to your episode. Yeah, I'm being paid by big chlorothaladone in industry from 40 years ago. Um, so, yeah, uh, the other thing when you're asking about blood pressure is to be aware that there are some medications that can increase blood pressure. Now, these aren't, like, super common, but, you know, nice to know about if they're there so maybe give us a little list back what uh what sort of medication yeah, i would actually argue that one of these is is pretty super common um, <laughs> <laughs> the oral contraceptive I don't... <laughs> a large proportion of 50 percent of the population do take um so, so the um the combined oral contraceptive pill can can lead to hypertension so can the uh vastly less frequently prescribed medications, vascular endothelial growth factor inhibitors or VEGF inhibitors. And I won't lie, I can't remember what they're called. So I'm just doing a quick Google search on my phone to find an example of a VEGF. Bevacizumab. There you go. Bevacizumab. So in addition, over-the-counter medications like NSAIDs, decongestants, and and um, this is where some of those complementary and alternative medicines that Mountain is into really shine. So Arnica, Ephedra, uh, Ginseng, Gurana, Licorice are all um, some complementary medications that can lead to hypertension. Mm. Can't believe I just added myself. I'm, I'm going to be cancelled now after saying the oral contraceptive bill wasn't common. I'm done. Oh, well, we can soldier through this one. I think, last I think you're just meaning that my renas are often much better tolerated. Yeah. Yes. <laughs> um, and then I think that something's really, and I got to talk about this last week. That's really cool from some, 
someone who just did their PhD on it in Oxford, uh, pregnancy-related hypertension. So for women who have had a pregnancy before, asking whether or not they had high blood pressure during that time. Turns out it's a really fascinating phenomena that, you know, one increases their cardiovascular risk for the rest of their life, more likely to get a hypertension later, also probably marginally increases the risk of the um, fetus having, or, you know, now the baby having um, cardiovascular disease long-term. So uh, that's really emerging as a, as a big thing in the cardiology field, um, having had pregnancy-related hypertension. And I'm sure the same is probably true for gestational diabetes, right, Peck, in terms of its risk of future diabetes. And Yeah, yeah, that's right. Yeah. Um, so that's all the blood pressure stuff. So, you know, how long have you had it like this? Have you checked it yourself and what's it been like in the past? Uh, what medications have you tried before and have you had any side effects? Are you on any other medications that might be causing it? And if you're, if you've had a pregnancy before, did you have high blood pressure or any problems during that pregnancy? So that's the blood pressure. Now we might move into some of those risk factors and comorbidities we were speaking about earlier. So what um, comorbidities might you be looking for, Beck? Yeah. So firstly, some complications or um, manifestations of the hypertension. So a history of cardiovascular disease, like myocardial infarction, heart failure, stroke, and then related risk factors like diabetes, dyslipidemia, chronic kidney disease, asking questions about some of those modifiable risk factors like smoking, diet, alcohol, physical activity, and even psychiatric history such as depression. Then thinking about another comorbidity that could be a little clue to a secondary cause if the patient is also taking lots and lots of potassium supplements, that's got to make you think about whether they might have primary aldosteronism. And one of the key things to think about is if they have no risk factors for hypertension, so this is the young, otherwise healthy person, uh, that, that is actually a bit of a red flag that they might have secondary hypertension. Okay. And then family history, I think is really important here as well. So first of all, a family history of hypertension might hint to you that there's some genetic disorder here, like primary hyperaldosteronism, which we'll talk about later. I think also a family history of premature cardiovascular death is helpful. You just get a bit of a feel for how much of a risk you're dealing with here, and that can help you titrate your treatment and how aggressive you're going to be. Um, and a history of high cholesterol or diabetes in the family as well. And then sort of you know, to complement everything we've been talking about before, there's also a social history here. Um, and so one of the things I think is really helpful is knowing about drugs, young people, cocaine, or, you know, middle-aged people, cocaine, which is a potent cause of hypertension. Same with amphetamines, which also cause hypertension. And you do occasionally get surprised when you take a history and find out that someone does have a bit of a habit. And then things like caffeine, highly caffeinated drinks or piranha can probably lead to... Um, to hypertension. Interestingly, coffee, and I think we might have discussed that before, doesn't necessarily cause hypertension because it has polyphenols in it that counteract the effects of caffeine. Good to know. Mm. Um, so a few more questions to deal with sort of, you know, directly when someone comes in with a hypertensive crisis that we'll talk about later is whether or not they have symptoms of hypertension. Now, 99% of your patients will not have this. So don't, if someone's blood pressure is 140, don't think that those symptoms are due to their blood pressure. But if someone has a really high blood pressure, like you know, I had a patient who had a blood pressure of 270 uh, recently, they had chest pain, dyspnea, palpitations, headaches, and blurred vision. Uh, yeah, so there's some things to keep out in terms of a hypertensive crisis. And then there's a few symptoms that are suggestive of secondary hypertension, so a secondary cause. So for primary hyperaldosteronism, what might you see there, Beck? These are unusual, but just so. Yeah, look, I, I think that this is, this is pretty extremely unusual, but um, associated with primary um, aldosteronism, there's often, but not always, hypokalemia. 
And so the symptoms of hypokalemia might be muscle weaknesses, cramps, or arrhythmias. But that's really not going to be very common at all. Um, yeah. So, I mean, these wouldn't be the first questions I'd be asking on a history of somebody who has just come into your GP consulting room with a blood pressure of 145. Do you have cramps or arrhythmias? Yeah. Like but just something to, to... Probably more, these are MCQ fodder, like something yeah. that they like to put in a stem, I'm guessing, if they've got a young person with high blood pressure and they want you to write primary hyperaldosteronism, but you probably won't ever see it um, yeah, like that. Um, flash pulmonary edema, similarly for renal artery stenosis. I've never really fully worked out why that happens, um, but I think it has something to do with just acute spikes in blood pressure that cause pulmonary edema. I've seen it once. Um, this one probably is a little bit more common, but again, Beck, I'd defer to you because you'd see more of this than I do. But with pheochromocytoma, which we'll talk about what that is later, sweating, palpitations, and frequent headaches. What do you yeah, think, Josh? Yeah, the, and the, you do you do see this, and I think the key thing here is that they're getting episodic symptoms. So um, often there's there's periods in between these episodes where they feel fine, and that's associated with a catecholamine surge that will occasionally happen, and then in between times uh, the level may not be so high. So yep. the key word there is episodic, sweating, palpitations, and headaches. Yeah. And then um, I think just come back to some more common stuff. Uh, so if someone has snoring, daytime sleepiness, um, you might be thinking of obstructive sleep apnea and then thinking about thyroid disease as you do in almost every uh, condition as it can be yeah. a cause. And contrary to what most people tend to think, it's hypothyroidism rather than hyperthyroidism. That That's interesting. I actually didn't know that. Yeah. Interesting. Um, do you want to tell us a bit more about mountain Beck? Yeah, so she tells you that she's otherwise well and was first diagnosed with hypertension last year at age 51 when a roaming preventative health service set up next to her tarot card reading stand at the market and was offering free turmeric lattes with blood pressure readings. Just on that note, turmeric lattes are actually really good. So. Do you think they're good? I think they're a bit I gross. I mean, I like yeah, the hot milk aspect surprised. of it. No, no, I'm into them. Okay. Well, I know what All you're right. getting for Christmas. <laughs> she is on no prescription medications <laughs> No surprise to anyone. Now, do I call it ginseng or ginseng? I'm a ginseng guy, but I don't know. I don't know what okay. the true. Uh, she also takes homeopathic doses of arnica and ephedra. Mm. Um, you do a quick Google search under the table and see that arnica is a poison when taken orally, except in homeopathic doses, which fortunately these are. Where and it's ephedra a miraculous cure. Just, just uh, speed. Yeah. <laughs> So you perform an ECG on her despite her initial hesitancy due to the radio waves interfering with her chakras. You notice very large QRS complexes and what might be the peaky tops of a bifid P wave. Ooh, getting me turned on over here talking about that ECG. Um, so, so let's talk about the examination in hypertension. Now, I think obviously we've spoken about doing a blood pressure. We've spoken about that ad nauseum until it's caused nausea in all of you. But um, there are a few other things you can look at um, in the circulatory system. Um, so you can check the old good old pulse of the wrist. Uh, so it might be irregular and they might have atrial fibrillation, which can be a consequence of high blood pressure. You might see an elevated JVP if you can at all ever see a JVP in your life. Uh, and that is associated with heart failure due to hypertension. Um, <laughs> if you ever hear a fourth heart sound, you know, I was talking to one of the consultants there, I'm like, really, just the whole physician's exam and doing this clinical exam stuff is just so, I mean, I can't think of having done any of these things except for feeling a pulse and maybe occasionally looking at JVP since I did my exam. But, you know, if you hear a fourth heart sound yeah. or a 
hyperdynamic apex beat or um you feel really good about yourself when you can write that in the notes yeah yeah even though i've never been confident that i have those things right um but yeah so if you feel those it can be a sign of a thick chonky heart so it's beating really hard causing a hard apex beat or a fourth heart sound theoretically thick chonky heart in the notes will also lend some more credibility many kudos points skills yeah yeah um this one might actually be mildly useful a radio femoral delay so you feel the radio pulse at the same time as a femoral pulse which a little awkward to actually get that into position but um, that can be a sign of coarctation of the aorta. Um, so that is when you have a narrowing of the aorta, usually just distal to the left subclavian, so just after where the arm arteries come off, and um, that causes hypertension in the upper limbs and you know, relative hypotension in the lower limbs. Mm. And something that's a cornerstone of Rebecca's physical examination, the abdominal brewery. Yep, never miss it. <laughs> I, I've never done this before. I wouldn't know how to do it, so I can't tell you. Sorry, but apparently it's ninety-nine percent specific, no doubt, only in the right hand, and forty percent sensitive for renal arteries stenosis. If you can hear an abdominal brewery localizing to one side, because that's turbulent flow through a renal artery that you've managed to hear through three layers of organs. Um, Congratulations to you. Um, so other systems to look at, you know, looking at that large neck, like we spoke about for obstructive sleep apnea, a high BMI to suggest, you know, the, the other risk factors along there, as well as, you know, a cause for high blood pressure and, um, and a Cushingoid appearance, which you know, can theoretically cause hypertension. Um, I don't know. I, I think we were talking about... Unre- unrealistically. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> Any endocrinological diagnosis is theoretical in my books. <laughs> So, so look, I think we waffled on for a fair bit there, but basically the examination, what we're looking for is examining the blood pressure properly and then looking again for evidence of both complications of hypertension, um, such as heart failure, atrial fibrillation, or any evidence that there might be a secondary cause. So looking for coarctation of the aorta with a radiofemoral delay, looking for a large neck circumference that might suggest obstructive sleep apnea or any um, Cushingoid appearance that could suggest Cushing syndrome. Yeah. Okay. So what about some basic investigations? These are some sort of first line investigations and we've spoken a bit about them. What might you see on say urine electrolytes, creatinine panel, your humble UEC? Yeah. So anyone who's getting their blood taken is going to get FBE UEC at minimum. FBE is not generally all that helpful uec i would say is also not super helpful here um the sodium and potassium may give you a clue to some of those endocrine causes so primary hyperaldosteronism is uh, is associated classically with hypokalemia but about 50 percent don't present classically and actually have normal potassium um, in Cushing syndrome, the sodium tends to be elevated and again, the potassium would be low. So a little bit further down the page on the UEC gets a bit more helpful. So looking at that renal function to see if there's any renal impairment that might give you an idea of both the cause and also what you're going to do with treatment. Yeah, because a lot of our drugs, if you go back to the drug episode, which don't we all fondly remember or even remember at all, cause <laughs> or um, affect your renal function and so really when you get someone with high blood pressure who has renal disease it becomes very very difficult to treat them um, because most of your first line agents are out the window um, so that's your uecs and then you know screening for your comorbid risk factors um, your lipids and your hba1c are really important um, so look at the diabetes and looking for an elevated cholesterol which will compound the risk of high blood pressure in your cardiovascular system 
And then something that I don't really ever order or haven't ordered in the last three years, but I should, um, is a urine albumin creatinine ratio. You probably order a lot of them back. Do you want to tell us about those? Yeah, I order a lot of them. Um, so, so it's just part of the complication screen for diabetes, but it in itself, uh, an elevated urinary albumin creatinine ratio is a powerful predictor of cardiovascular outcomes. So you don't want it to be elevated. And if it is, it should prompt you to try and do something about it. Yeah, it's like really, really strong risk factor. Um, we should, I guess, look at it more. I suppose I don't know. You know, either way, you should be really aggressive about your um, preventative therapy, but it is a, it is a good indicator. Um, and then an ECG, the humble old ECG, which, as we said, can show atrial fibrillation. It can show sort of the precursor to that, which is that bifid P wave, so large left atrium is seen with a bifid or M-shaped looking P wave, um, and left ventricular hypertrophy, which is uh, heralded by very um, large QRS complexes, large voltage QRS complexes. Yeah, there's a bunch of um, cardiovascular risk assessment tools you can use. Um, here's one you put up here, Beck. Do you want to talk through this one? Yeah, so um, so, so there's a, a few different ones, but perhaps before we talk about the specifics, just as a general concept, the, uh, the guidelines in Australia are that your pharmacotherapy and, and your targets and monitoring and all that kind of thing for blood pressure should actually be guided by the overall cardiovascular risk assessment. So not just looking at just the blood pressure or any one of those risk factors in isolation. So one of the ones that I use is in Australia, www.cvdcheck.org.au. And this is a calculator that asks for the blood pressure as well as the patient's sex, age, whether they smoke, if they've got diabetes, what their lipid profile is and what their ECG shows. Uh, yeah. you, you use a different one. Um, I use an American one, um, the ASCVD risk calculator, but um, that's mainly because that has a lot of helpful tools on there about statin therapy and what other therapies you can do and how you can modify the patient's risk. And you can just set patient profile up on there and they can see themselves what the effect of changing some of their behaviors will be. So um, it, they just talk about it a lot in the guidelines. But as long as, you know, if you have one that you like to use, it's just a bit helpful to help you, I guess, it, what does it do? It guides all of your different domains so whether it's um, blood pressure targets cholesterol targets um, hva1c targets there are all going to be pretty similar but it lets you know how aggressive to be about them and how much risk that the person is at in the future and and sometimes that's enough to sway a patient from saying no nah, i'm not even taking any medications to saying well look your you know five-year risk of having a heart attack is one in five then they will maybe come on board with you and sort of um, help understand your decision making a bit better yeah that's right so after recognizing the left ventricle, uh, ventricular hypertrophy and left atrial enlargement on Mountain's ECG, you decide to refer her for an echocardiogram. She's extremely pleased to know that the echocardiogram probe uses crystals. However, she tests the limits of your knowledge by asking too many details on the type and phase of the crystals and how they relate to Jupiter's 79 moons. Unfortunately, the crystals don't bode well for Mountain on this occasion, and she's found to have severe left ventricular hypertrophy and left atrial dilation. So I think this ties us into, uh, you know, a bit more of the advanced investigations or maybe more specific investigations that you can do in someone who has high blood pressure. Now, these are very much going to be driven by your clinical picture. And maybe it's, you know, a little bit pretty early to talk about this, but, um, you know, echocardiography, when you see an abnormal ECG is, is worth its weight in gold. You can start to see whether someone has, you know, high blood pressure affects every part of the heart. So thick left ventricle, left ventricular hypertrophy. It can cause systolic dysfunction, so actual heart failure, um, atrial size, so your atrium, left atrium, and 
know, your right atrium will get very large. That can cause atrial fibrillation. Um, it causes aortic dilation, which is a big risk factor for aneurysm uh, for, for a dissection, which is almost immediately fatal in most people. And um, aortic coarctation more as a cause of high blood pressure. So we spoke about how aortic coarctation is a congenital narrowing of the aorta uh, just distal to the left subclavian artery. And that um, can cause hypertension, in, and especially in young adults. So an echo is really helpful. Uh, Good in... bang for your buck there, looking for causes as well as complications. Mm -hmm. But then there's some other things you can look at, which are probably more um, specific to your patient cohort. So in someone who's had a stroke, you can do a carotid ultrasound and see how much plaque there is in their carotid and would they have significant stenosis. Um, and stroke is obviously very common in people with high blood pressure. Yeah. So I guess the thing here is that if you do find that somebody has carotid stenosis, you would tend to not do anything from a surgical perspective unless they've had a stroke in the preceding two weeks. So this mm. may have some limitations. Um, it, but you it, might head further south. Oh, sorry, what were you going to say? Oh, I was going to say, it, again, finding plaque in any arterial bed is one of those things that also kind of helps you from a risk stratification point of view about being aggressive with potentially aspirin, but definitely a statin. But yeah. Mm -hmm. So another thing you can image is the renal arteries. So again, you're, you're mostly looking here for renal artery stenosis, uh, but you might see as a bonus a few other things. You might see if there's any... Uh, renal parenchymal disease. You might see some adrenal lesions doing that, but I think a really key point that I want to make here is that you should not be doing any adrenal imaging as workup for, um, for hypertension. So you don't go looking for any adrenal pathology in imaging unless you know that there's actual biochemical evidence that there's some kind of an adrenal disease likely, like primary aldosteronism or, or like Cushing syndrome. So don't start with the imaging, start with other stuff and then go to the imaging last. That's a good tip. We haven't got a, you know, a hypertension screen that involves just running an echo probe from the top of the person's body down. The <laughs> um, uh, just to go back, the parenchymal disease thing, this word always used to confuse me when I was a medical student, just means like, well, in this context, it just means the kidneys are small and shrunken. Parenchyma being like the, what is the definition of parenchyma? It's like the organ tissue. That's what it means, isn't it? Good bit, the functional the, bit. Yeah, the good bit. Yeah. So if the good bit doesn't look so good, then you know you've probably got chronic kidney disease either because of or um, causing hypertension. Yes. Yeah, sorry, I skimmed over that bit. Cool. Um, go, going back to the bit that I find really interesting is the adrenals. <laughs> so um, so yeah, many of you will be familiar with the term adrenal incidentaloma. So any uh, out of all the imaging that captures the adrenals, whether it's an abdo CT or a renal ultrasound or whatever, um, three to four uh, percent will actually find an adrenal incidentaloma, and then you get stuck not really knowing what to do about it, and the patient gets caught in many, many investigations that they need to go through. Really, is a minefield out there. It's so easy to just find yourself getting snapped in the bear trap of investigations as a patient, mm. and then going down here on the treadmill yeah um and then of course brain imaging but that's exclusively reserved for people who have actually had a stroke or symptoms of a stroke to see whether or not they might have a bleed or an occluded vessel in their brain yeah um okay so what about investigating you know we're in the investigations territory here beck um Perhaps we can talk more about this later, but just some brief blood tests you might order to investigate those secondary causes of hypertension. So hypertension causes that aren't just garden variety essential hypertension. Yeah, so um, we've mentioned many times primary aldosteronism. Um, so the, aldo, the aldosterone renin ratio is a blood test to do here. We'll talk more about the details of how to do that blood test, but I think a key thing there is that 
you often need to change the patient's medications, their antihypertensive medications prior to doing that test. And uh, interpreting or, it seems to be quite tricky and endocrinologists get have all seem to have their own way of doing it. Yeah, so the interpretation often does depend on what medications the patient is on that might interfere with the result as well. It's also important to make sure the patient has normal potassium because their aldosterone level is going to change according to uh, what the body feels like it needs to do to, to normalise the potassium if it's not normal. Uh, but as I said, we'll come back to that a little bit later. Another blood test that is uh, useful if there's clinical concern is um, looking for fear chromocytoma. So we do plasma metanephrines and normetanephrines. In the past, we used to send off urinary catecholamines, but that's, uh, that's sort of a bit of a relic of the past now. It's, it's not generally done because we have these really good, specific and sensitive um, serum tests. And for the urinary um, catecholamines, the patient has to collect 24 hours of their own urine, don't they, Beck? Which is, yeah, it's just not just fun. Just an unpleasant thing to do. <laughs> but speaking of that, screening for Cushing syndrome, <laughs> um, our options are that the patient has to collect 24 hours of their own urine. <laughs> I like that you specify it's their own. <laughs> you give the I am perfectly fine with collecting someone else's urine for 24 then... <laughs> hours. Years, in fact. <laughs> um, but anyway, so, so, so yes, that, that third endocrine um, secondary cause of hypertension is Cushing syndrome or Cushing disease. Um, again, I think the key thing that I want to convey here is don't just do this on anyone who's hypertensive. It's, very, very difficult to diagnose somebody with Cushing syndrome. And I think this is really a classic case of the more you know, the less clear it seems. Um, but the certainly the advice that endocrine trainees are given is don't go looking for it unless you have a really compelling clinical picture. So uh, if they've got hypertension and they've also got diabetes and also Cushingoid facies or some other physical signs of it, um, and, and perhaps also have some elevated elevations in their sodium and a low potassium if all those things are kind of coming together and you're pretty concerned about it then you might start screening for Cushing syndrome and the way you can screen uh, is um, using a 24-hour urine cortisol as I mentioned you can also do a midnight salivary cortisol which is basically when you get them to chomp on a swab for a little bit at midnight and the reason um, that why is it done at midnight aside from that being yeah so so cortisol there's, there's a bit of diurnal variation in the cortisol so at different points in the day and the night um the level's going to be different so um we you want to get uh, these need to be sort of standardized um for the set time because you can't compare someone's salivary cortisol at, at eight in the morning with someone's salivary cortisol at um, yeah you know, so it should be low at midnight right and yeah yeah, and it, it should be and it should be uh, rising to be higher by sort of eight o'clock in the morning. Hmm. Um, the dexamethasone suppression test is the one that I most commonly use, though. It's a bit more of a one and done test. So what this involves is giving the patient one milligram of dexamethasone. Um, so they chow that down at about eleven o'clock at night, and then the following morning at eight or nine a.m., you take a cortisol level. And the idea is that. If everything's working as it should, if you feed them dexamethasone, their own endogenous cortisol should be low when you take that sample in the morning. Um, and if it's not suppressed by the dexamethasone, then you need to start looking a bit further for whether the patient does in fact have Cushing syndrome. Still just a screening test rather than a diagnosis. So um, that's a good place to start. 
or just call the endocrinology red shark and that's an easier way to do it and but i'll chew your ear off and say exactly what <laughs> yeah you'll yeah, get that spiel again forget <laughs> it and the endo reg will do it anyway <laughs> we actually had a patient um with i should have mentioned her in this case but a patient I, i'm looking after at the moment who has um very high blood pressure and the 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 screen of those three tests I just talked about has now taken three weeks and I don't think we've successfully done a six-semester <laughs> yeah. test. I, I order them and the <laughs> just never get them back or check them again. But I feel so smart when I do. It's great. <laughs> All right, let's um, go back to Mountain. Yeah. So you explained to Mountain the significance of her blood pressure. She looks mournfully at you and asks if perhaps changing to an LSD-based tea from the herbal tisane she drinks daily might help. She heard that uh, Hoffman originally inv- invented LSD in a search for a blood pressure medication. A shiver works its way down your spine slowly as you imagine telling her the news that you'll re- re- be recommending she gets familiar with the big suits at Big Pharma. Okay, let's talk about uh, the treatment of high blood pressure. So I think we spoke a little bit more about... Um, well, we did speak about uh, what the definitions of blood pressure were, but that doesn't really tell us what our targets are. And, and I think in this situation, it's always helpful to work out why we're controlling this, and that's to reduce cardiovascular events. Again, broad cardiovascular strokes, peripheral vascular heart attacks, not just heart attacks. Um, and so the higher risk you are of having a cardiovascular event, the more benefit you're going to get from aggressive blood pressure control. So, you know, if blood pressure is your only isolated risk factor, that's fine. But if you have diabetes, you're a smoker, you have a strong family history, and you've got an LDL cholesterol at six, you're someone who is just primed to have a heart attack at any point in time. And bringing your risk down is really, really important in as many demands as we can. So this goes back again to what we were saying about using a a validated calculator to determine what somebody's cardiovascular risk is and then following those guidelines. And that'll tell you exactly what the targets are, not just for blood pressure, but for everything else as well. Yeah, good tieback, Beck. Good tieback. Um, <laughs> so for most patients, though, we all like general rules. For most patients, we're going to be looking for a blood pressure of less than one thirty systolic, less than one thirty systolic, and less than eighty diastolic, less than eighty millimeters mercury diastolic. Um, now, there are some people who you want to be less aggressive in, maybe. Um, I like to be aggressive to everyone, but some people like to be less aggressive to some people. Um, and in those people, maybe you go for one less than 135 millimeters mercury systolic. So instead of less than 130, less than 135. And for the diastolic, instead of less than 80, you might go for less than 85. So, I mean, who might you be less aggressive towards, uh, Beck? To be honest, most of the general medical population. So the, the greater than 75-year-olds, People who have a very labile blood pressure, so you're trying to avoid those those swings down to hypotension, and those who are already on multiple antihypertensive medications. Yeah, yeah, exactly. Once you start to pile on the antihypertensive medications, interaction side effects are all becoming bigger and bigger, and so you know maybe you start to give up and your targets a little bit, just a touch, so that um, you don't cause the patient a problem. Now. There are a lot of people who would probably take umbrage with what I've just said, that a less aggressive target is less than 135. Uh, geriatricians seem to be happy to let patients run at 180 millimeters of mercury. Um, but, you know, from a cardiology perspective, uh, there's pretty good data in people who are older um, that even controlling their blood pressure a bit more aggressively, as long as they're not having syncope and they're not having injuries, is still a good thing to do. And so, I mean, despite us having different uh, ideas you know i think that recording your targets or for me i put it in my letters and say i am targeting a blood pressure of this if they do not reach this please try this um that way it's clear what you know the expectation is because you know somebody who doesn't deal with blood pressure all the time 
might say, oh, we're less than 160. That's cool. We can just keep rolling there. Yeah. And I think the key thing is just to individualize to the patient. Yeah. So lifestyle modifications. I mean, if you're from Monash, Flash, probably any other university, you're always told this is the first thing to talk about in your OSCE. But how much effect can you actually get from a lifestyle modification for blood pressure? So, you know, number one is telling people um, to move to the Bahamas. That might be helpful. Um, blood pressure seems to have a seasonal element to it, um, and it's probably related to temperature. Summer is associated with a decrease in blood pressure of about five on three millimeters of mercury. So, um, dehydration or because everyone's so relaxed? Yeah, I don't know if that's fully um, understood. Uh, I'm going to say because everyone's that relaxed. That's, uh, <laughs> that's not well understood by the medical <laughs> or, or my, myself. <laughs> Or particularly me. <laughs> I'm part of the medical community. Um, so, yeah, uh, yeah, that's just a bit of a facetious one, but there is some seasonal, seasonal element to it. But um, smoking cessation is super important. One, because smoking cessation itself is beneficial, but it also reduces your blood pressure. And so it goes more than just, and Beck, you probably do this a lot better than I do, but it's more than just saying, hey, you should stop smoking or, hey, how much do you smoke? You just have to say it really loudly. Yeah, yeah, yeah. If you can somehow tie it to a negative trigger in a Pavlovian style, then you might be able to get them off the cigarettes. Um, uh, if you offer them AIDS, there are a whole bunch of nicotine replacement therapies now. They are effective. They do work, um, you know, uh, I think these are the really important things to do. And, and, you know, there are a lot of specialists in this area, probably hard to get appointments with them. But um, I think, I actually think GPs are probably, you know, the most qualified to deal with this. They probably deal with the most, um, out of the, more, certainly more than cardiologists. Um, and then one thing that I always find helpful just from an anecdotal point of view is identifying triggers for patients. So many patients will say, you know, either it's a family member who smokes or there's something really stressful in their life. And it's very hard to fix that if you they haven't fixed the underlying trigger or they're sad about something that's happened, whatever. Um, so just some things to think about. Um, regular exercise, I tell every single one of my patients, 30 minutes of um, aerobic activity for five days a week minimum. Um, that's the minimum. Uh, but realistically, that can probably only decrease your blood pressure by five on three millimeters of mercury. So, you know, we're not going to take Mountain, who's up at 180 on her first reading, and get her to do a bit of exercise and find a blood pressure of 120 the next time she comes back. What, what about weight loss, Beck? Yeah, so, uh, so this seems to be almost like a continuous linear association that patients can lose 0.5 to 2 millimetres of mercury per kilogram of weight loss. Um, I think that that probably reaches an asymptote at some point, but, uh, but certainly weight loss is an important lifestyle modification. Well, if you keep losing weight, your blood pressure will go to zero eventually. So it's true. <laughs> and then salt intake. So this is a big one. Um, there's probably some new data. I think Beck was talking about the other day that I haven't seen yet, but as a general rule, um, reduction in salt can give you a five on 2.5. So five systolic and 2.5 diastolic millimeter decrease in uh, your blood pressure. So what does reduction mean? I mean, ideally we want people to be less than 1.5 grams of sodium a day. What the hell does that mean? Um, it means about a teaspoon of salt in their whole, all their meals all day, which is pretty bland if patients aren't used to it. Um, but, you know, it is a really, um, you know, evidence-based approach to high blood pressure in people who have high blood pressure. Now, the effect of salt in people who don't already have high blood pressure is a lot more disputed and it's not clear that it, it offers any benefit, though, as I understand, you've put Davor on a low-salt diet. Is that right, Beck? <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Um, I was going to look this up before this uh, episode, but I have no um, no reference for this. But Davor was actually just recently telling me that there 
is apparently some reason why we should have less salt in our diet, which um, is a pity because the pre- previous working theory was that if you're healthy, it doesn't matter. Yeah. Apparently that's no longer true. Yeah. Yeah. Pretty soon I won't be healthy anymore anyway. I'm getting older. And so <laughs> they wouldn't have even applied. Yeah. I got the golden years out of that, that theory. <laughs> um, so now we're into the, the good stuff. Let's make some money for the drug companies. Hey, um, so drug therapy. So, I think one thing that we may have spoken about before, but um, aside from a few specific cases, uh, what really matters is the degree of blood pressure reduction, not the actual drug you're using. And so just bring it down. Now, that being said, there are drugs that are first line, second line, and drugs that are off in the weeds because they haven't been tested as much. Um, But as a general rule, you you just need to get the blood pressure down with some combination. So drug therapy of any variety compared to placebo results in half the risk of heart failure in the long term, 40% 40% reduction in stroke and a one quarter reduction in myocardial infarction. It was pretty astounding. So getting someone on drug yeah. therapy on a mountain is pretty important. Yeah. Okay. And I think that's underscored by the fact that we've seen the effect sizes of lifestyle measures. You aren't taking someone from 160 down to normal or, you know, you know target with just lifestyle measures. So um, who should we be starting drugs in? Yeah, that's a great question. So I think, um, you know, anyone who's got a blood pressure of 135 or 85 um, diastolic, so 135 systolic or 85 diastolic, that's a reasonable time to start therapy in. Because again, what we've seen most of the time from what we've been looking at is that you're getting about five on three. If someone, you know, five millimeters systolic and three millimeters diastolic reduction with lifestyle measures, if someone really adheres to it. So, you know, by the time you're at 135 on 85, losing that five on three because they've lost two, three, four kilos is not really going to get them into the range they need to be for the long term. Um, but, you know, again, if someone's got a higher risk, they're going to reap a higher benefit from blood pressure lowering. And so in those with high risk, we want to get the blood pressure even, uh, we want to start to move a little bit earlier. So who, who are the high risk patients who we might start to treat at just above 130 or 80 uh, with drugs, Beck? Uh, so patients who already have established cardiovascular disease, so they've got ischemic heart disease, heart failure, carotid disease, stroke, or peripheral arterial disease. Yep. Um, if they've also, and again, we'd really be just using the the risk calculators. <clears throat> yeah, but um, if they've also got type two diabetes, chronic kidney disease, or if they're older than sixty five. Yeah. Yeah. So for those people, we need to prevent the progression or prevent the likelihood of them progressing to a first cardiovascular event. And so it's about being more aggressive and not waiting. Um, So then we come to first line drug therapy. Now, I think we discussed this a lot in the drug podcast, but we basically are choosing between us four drugs, roughly back. And what are those in first line drug therapy for hypertension? Yeah. So um, you've got your thiazide type diuretics, long-acting calcium channel blockers, ACE inhibitors, or angiotensin II receptor blockers. Yeah, and they're all much of a mustness. Probably in renal disease, your ACE inhibitors are going to be your best. Obviously, if someone has heart failure, an ACE inhibitor is going to be a key component of their therapy. But other than that, again, it's about bringing it down. My personal choice or favorite is to go for an ACE inhibitor plus a calcium channel blocker, like something like amlodipine to start off with. Uh, but a lot of people do ACE inhibitor plus a thiazide type diuretic. They're both really, really effective combinations. And I think another thing to think about here is adherence. So if a patient is going to take a combination pill, but unlikely to take two different pills, uh, then you put them on a combination pill. The, only drug, the best drug is the one that the patient takes. Yeah. And there's a lot of really cool work about polypill prevention studies. So where they essentially just mix a statin, a thiazide diuretic and, you know, an ACE inhibitor into a pill and just give it to everyone. And 
the results are actually astoundingly good in terms of reducing cardiovascular disease in the long term. Um, so there's a lot of people saying out there that we should just give a poly pill to anyone who's even at mildly increased risk of cardiovascular disease, but that's a separate talk. Um, so combination drug therapy. You know, we've talked about the reductions that you can expect to see with lifestyle therapy and sort of in the same way that same is true for drug therapy. One tablet is not going to bring someone like Mountain down from 180 down to her target of, you know, say one, less than 130. Um, and so for those people, for people with the blood pressure over 15 millimeters over their goal, then really the recommendation these days is to start with combination therapy. Yeah, um, yeah this is really, I think we should stop um, there to just highlight that. So if the patient is already more than 15 millimeters systolic over their target, start first of all with a combination drug. Yeah, or combination yeah. therapy rather. Yeah, and um, and something else that you'll see here um, is that rather than just pushing one drug up to maximum and then adding another drug, the favorable thing to do is really to have two drugs on at a slightly lower dose because they have synergistic effects. So, for example, you know, ACE inhibitors work by decreasing the amount of angiotensin and preventing vascular. Um, uh, constriction and then you might have a diuretic on which also lowers your blood volume and for more details on that you can listen to the other two podcasts which really di deep dive into the physiology but you want to be sort of mixing those effects and getting you know more bang for your buck rather than giving someone more side effects from a higher dose and probably still not hitting target um, so we talked about some good dual combinations you know when you sort of start to add in a third drug um, you can either look at an ACE inhibitor plus a gastric channel blocker plus a thiazide so basically all three of the two combinations we're talking about for we can start to toss in and this is my favorite is to start putting spironolactone in pretty early um, and we'll talk about why that's so effective but spironolactone is just really an awesome drug for high blood pressure um, so resistant hypertension Beck, you were telling us about this earlier um, yeah so we were saying that the definition is blood pressure that's not controlled by three antihypertensives, one of which is a thiazide. Mm. Yeah. And uh, yeah, I think it's just one of those things that should prompt you to one look in to make sure that you're measuring this blood pressure properly, maybe consider an ambulatory blood pressure monitor, maybe make sure the patient's taking their um, drugs and make sure that they aren't using anything else in the background like cocaine or, you know, stimulants that are causing the blood pressure to be high. But two, then think about secondary causes. So do they have hyperaldosteronism? Do they have renal artery stenosis? Do they have a fear promocytoma? Because it's, I guess it's unusual, but not get that uncommon to require more than three antihypertensive drugs. So uh, back to Mountain. She refuses your attempts to medicate her and send her down the pathway of impurity, crystal impurity. So a few months later, you're doing a cover or shift in the emergency department when Mountain comes in. While at a drum circle, she began to lose the rhythm and her left hand was unable to provide the appropriate forte and drifted towards the pianissimo side of the scale. Initial imaging in the emergency department revealed a not-so-pianissimo intracerebral bleed in her right parietal lobe, um, and you move quickly to help, uh, uh, help Mountain recover. So I think this moves into what we're going to talk about before, uh, or what we mentioned before, Beck, which is hypertensive crises, or what's now known as urgencies and emergencies. Um, so what is a hypertensive emergency, Beck? So a hypertensive emergency is severe hypertension, so more than 180 on 120 with evidence of end organ damage. Mm. And if there's severe hypertension without that end organ damage, then the label we slap on that one is hypertensive urgency. Yeah. So as an intern or resident or wherever you're at, this is one of those things where if you see it on the blood, you're looking at the blood pressure on the chart and if it's high, you're actually starting to go, okay, we actually need to do something about like this now. So what is end organ damage? <coughs> what should we be looking for to, to 
Um, yeah, that's a great question. So there's, you know, um, I guess a whole bunch of organs that can be affected by very severe hypertension. Um, the brain is one of the most important ones. Um, shame Davor isn't here to hear me say that. <laughs> um, uh, but intracranial hemorrhage or stroke. Again, my, my patient who I mentioned earlier, who had a blood pressure of 270 on 140. 40 or 50 or whatever it was, he had a stroke whilst on the ward with us very quickly, despite us already getting things to lower his um, blood pressure down, ischemic stroke. So stroke is one. The heart is the other one. Um, it can cause either myocardial infarctions or heart failure. And you, he actually had acute heart failure when he first came in because the afterload's so high from blood pressure of 270 that his heart could not pump any more blood out there. Aortic dissection is probably the worst one. Um, so an aortic dissection is where you get a tear in the layer of the aorta, which can ultimately lead to the aorta rupturing very quickly, uh, almost 100% mortality. Um, and it's very difficult to control um, and very difficult surgery, very large surgery. Um, Preeclampsia is one in pregnant women, um, which can lead to sort of endothelial and placental dysfunction and ultimately to both maternal and fetal demise in, in really bad situations. And one that's probably not appreciated very often is ocular emergency. So people can have um, vitreal bleeds and problems with their eyes related to hypertension as well in these circumstances. Um, so these patients should basically get chest x-ray, ECG, bloods for sure. And then if they have symptoms, brain or aortic imaging um, for there. And, and your goal is to treat these people quickly and aggressively. Well, I guess the, the goal is to them sometimes not so, quickly, <laughs> yeah. not so aggressively <laughs> uh, everything i do is quick and aggressive right there. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. so i guess the, i guess the thing that you're that you're weighing up here is um if the if the patients had a, an aortic dissection then you, you go you go quick you go aggressive uh but for a lot of other people if the if the blood pressure has been building slowly and the vasculature has accommodated to that higher bp then you want to try and bring this blood pressure down slowly, but quickly respond to it and then <laughs> quickly and aggressively be slow about your reduction of the blood pressure. <laughs> exactly. So in summary, we want it to be slow and quick and aggressive and calm. <laughs> um, yeah. So I think, look, with stroke, um, you actually want to keep it up a little bit and the stroke guys are still doing research to work out where your blood pressure targets should be after stroke um, because obviously Cerebral perfusion pressure is somewhat a function, well, is a function of blood pressure. And so if you drop the blood pressure too low and someone's had an ischemic stroke, i.e. they've got a blood blocked blood vessel, um, then you can lose your cerebral perfusion pressure and that uh, part of the brain will die. Um, so there's sort of a balance. So generally they say less than 185 if someone's going to get thrombolysis, because if you give thrombolysis, which is the blood clot dissolving medication, if you give that someone with a really high blood pressure, basically like a high pressure pipe just causes bursts everywhere and they bleed. Um, if they're not going to get thrombolysis, just less than 220. And some people are very blase about that. For my brief time on the stroke wards, I found that the stroke consultants were all highly variable in the way they approached blood pressure post ischemic stroke. For aortic dissection. The, the concept here is, is the important thing rather than the specific numbers. That's right. Yeah, um, yeah. You don't, you don't want to drop it down too quickly. Yeah. But you also don't want it to be too high if you're going to be um, putting the clot busting juice in there. Yeah. Yeah, 100%. And the, the main one um, that, you know, is a problem is aortic dissection. So, you know, if you don't get the blood pressure under control in that situation and they have a dissection flap, so part of the aorta has torn off and there's still high blood pressure going in there, it will continue to propagate and tear that flap all the way around, all the way up to the cerebral vasculature, into the kidneys, into every organ, and um, essentially it will become 
non-repairable. Um, the patient will die. Uh, so in that situation, you'll be calling your friendly cardiology reg and ICU reg and instituting intravenous infusions of medications to bring the blood pressure down. Um, in this situation, using a beta blocker is really helpful um, after you've got some other drugs on board to help reduce the amount of systolic contraction from the heart so that there's not such forceful ejection that causes tearing of the, of the blood vessels. So IV libidolol is the one that's commonly used. But don't worry too much about that. The point is that if you've got an aortic dissection, it's about bringing the blood pressure down really, really aggressively to about 100 to 120 within 20 minutes. Okay, back. So a bit more case here. Um, after recovering partially from her intracerebral bleed, Mountain agrees to some further testing and treatment. You think it might be worth checking to see whether she has a secondary cause for hypertension now that she's so willing to undergo testing. This is where you're, this is your time to shine, Beck. This is endocrinology 101. Tell us about the secondary causes of hypertension. Yeah, all right. So if we start with primary hyperaldosteronism, so you might have learned about this um, if you're of our vintage or prior uh, as Cons syndrome. And I assumed that we ditched the eponymous name because he was a Nazi. But um, just, a, just here to say that he actually wasn't a Nazi. And I think um, I just want to make sure that that's known because the poor guy's probably just everyone's assumed he's a Nazi because we're not using his name anymore. He was just but a now... hardcore Stalinist um, <laughs> and also <laughs> had a brief stint in the Khmer Rouge, but not a Nazi. <laughs> <laughs> Um, so, so primary hyperaldosteronism, basically there's the three different kinds. There's um, aldosterone producing adenomas, um, bilateral idiopathic adrenal hyperplasia, which uh, is, is sort of is, is more common and generally not as florid. And then very rarely aldosterone producing adrenocortical carcinomas. And these are usually big fat, you know, greater than three centimeter things. Um, and then there's a few other even rarer causes of primary hyperaldosteronism um, that probably don't even fit here, but just to list them off, um, you can get ectopic familial or glucocorticoid remediable primary hyperaldosteronism. Okay. So basically, whatever the, whatever the cause of it is, um, what happens is that there's excess aldosterone produced by the adrenal glands. So do you know, um, Rahul, how common this is out of patients with hypertension? How many of them have primary aldosteronism? Yeah, so my understanding is that this is something that's really come into light recently. It was thought to be sort of this rare, another one of the endocrinological things that you come down with your weird tests and swabs to chew on at midnight. Um, but now it's realized that actually probably 5 to 15% of patients with, I think, resistant hypertension or hypertension in general. Hypertension I thought that, in general. Wow, yeah, there you go. So, and, and this kind of comes back to what I was saying before about why I like to use spironolactone pretty early on, um, because there probably is a fair significant amount of these people who you've gotten all these blood pressure medications on, it doesn't work. You give them spironolactone and that addresses this and, and that's the end of the story and no need for chewing on swabs at midnight. But I'm sure Beck doesn't feel that way about my approach to this. <laughs> um, yeah, so, so um, well, actually, you're kind of just a bit ahead of the curve here. So we, what we used to do... Uh, and, and what we are still currently doing is if there's clinical concern, and some people say that just having hypertension is enough to have clinical concern about primary hyperaldo, um, then you need to do some screening tests. And if they're positive, then go on to do some more specific tests. Um, what you're talking about, just giving spironolactone, is a kind of a blunt tool that, that really works. And it looks like that might be the way of the future. But at the moment, 
uh, what we do is we look out for things like hypokalemia, uh, which, as I said, only occurs in about 50% of patients. Um, and, uh, and particularly if there is resistant hypertension or if, as we said earlier, they're, they're young and they don't have other risk factors for essential hypertension, anything that's raising our clinical suspicion, then we do the aldosterone-renin ratio. And these tests can be most easily interpreted in patients who are not on any medications that um, interfere with it. So unfortunately, the medications that interfere with it are largely the ones that they're on. So a lot of antihypertensive medications. So I don't think it's um, worth going too deeply into this now, but just to know that any um, anyone who's on beta blockers or ACE inhibitors, angiotensin receptor blockers, or, or um, mineralocorticoid antagonists, um, so spironolactone, shouldn't it's very difficult to interpret an aldosterone ratio on them, so it's probably not worth doing. So on a practical level, often the best way to do it is actually to refer to endocrinology, and then an endocrinologist will take the patient off all those interfering drugs, swap them over to some drugs that don't interfere with it, and then four to six weeks later um, do the aldosterone-renin ratio. Um, do you know what you do if that's positive, what the next test is? Um testing whether or not my mobile network gives me coverage wherever I am so I can call you. <laughs> uh, correct, yes. And Telstra, you'll find, is often the better one there, but um, there is some variation. We recommend Telstra. No sponsorship, unfortunately. Unfortunately, but... Open to. Subject, subject to change. <laughs> yeah. Um, yeah, so what we do is uh, we, we test how they respond to a salt load. So it's a saline suppression test. Um, basically, you... Um, make sure that the patient's potassium is normal, hook them up to an IV and give them some normal saline and measure to see what their aldosterone levels do. Um, if their um, aldosterone levels aren't suppressed by the salt load, then you, you're concerned about, and that is more or less diagnostic of hyperaldosteronism. And following that, and only then, is it appropriate to start doing some imaging. So you can have a, do a CT of the adrenal glands, looking for masses, and then you can proceed to adrenal vein sampling. So basically, this is just trying to work out where's this extra aldosterone hormone coming from? Is it coming from both sides or just one side? Hmm. If, yeah. only, if the extra hormone's only coming from one side, then the easy thing to do is just take out that side. So um, surgical excision or an adrenalectomy on the, on the side that's proven to be the source of the problem. And it all sounds like a whole lot of fuss for something that can often be treated with spironolactone. But the thing is, spironolactone is not a completely benign drug. Um, unless you're a man who wants to have boobies, it's not <laughs> wonderful. And if you're treating these people when they're pretty young, uh, being on a being on antihypertensives and often many of them for, for the rest of their lives is, is not that desirable. And this is quite a simple surgery um, that can change people's lives. Is it actually that simple of a surgery? I always figured cutting down someone's adrenal glands and chopping the top off the kidney, take shaving a little off the kidney would be a, would be a tricky one. I mean, I haven't done it much myself. Um, <laughs> <laughs> um, but but an adrenal, like you're not taking both their adrenals out. Um, adrenalectomy is, is not, a, not an enormous surgery. And they don't end up on really replacement hormones or anything like that very no, often? They don't, no, yeah. the other one compensates. Cool. That's nice. All right. Well, that's primary hyperaldosteronism. And I think if you're going to remember one of the secondary causes of hypertension, 
that would be the one to remember. Um, so that's the one that where the adrenals are producing too much aldosterone and that's causing the whole problem. But getting into the slightly rarer, but still kind of cool and definitely still tested on MCQs, um, theochromocytoma, another endocrinology one, Beck. Can you tell us briefly about that? Yeah, okay. So um, this one's way more rare, so I'll try and keep it menstrually uh, shorter. Um, this is when there's catecholamines that are produced by tumors in the adrenal gland. So catecholamines are adrenaline, noradrenaline, dopamine, um, and these can present incidentally or with a hypertensive emergency like we talked about before. I actually, the first patient I saw with a pheochromocytoma was a young woman who presented with back pain and in ED they wanted to send her home telling her that it was just because she, I don't know, lifted a pot plant that was too heavy or something and she was really, really upset with this back pain. They did a CT and they found there was nothing wrong with her back but they found this massive adrenal tumour. Um, so the first one I saw was completely incidental and she was completely wow. asymptomatic. And that's actually not that uncommon. Um, unlike those high percentage points we were just saying for primary aldosteronism, pheos are super, super rare. So 0.1% of patients who are hypertensive will have a pheochromocytoma. We call them pheos because I can't pronounce them. Primary aldosteronism, which I also <laughs> seem to not be able to pronounce. I should have just been calling Con it. syndrome. It should be con syndrome. It should be. He's not a Nazi. So pheochromocytoma, usually diagnosed uh, in patients who are around 40 years old, although there's obviously a lot of variability there. And the classic multiple choice question triad of symptoms is episodic palpitations, headache, and diaphoresis. Yeah. Well, I was going to say, you know, in the um, pheo, in the cardiology world, pheo is kind of listed as one of the causes of um, a cardiomyopathy as well, um, which I can see you have uh, can lead to heart failure, pheochromocytoma through this constantly elevated blood pressure and elevated heart rate can cause your heart to actually become dysfunctional. Yeah, that's right. And it can be either sustained or episodic. So, um, so the classic is the symptoms are episodic, but the, the release of catecholamines tends to be constant, but it can come in waves as well. Um, so, so yeah, the complications, heart failure, they can actually just go into acute pulmonary edema, get arrhythmias, stroke. Um, and the way that we diagnose this is you can just send off serum or plasma metanephrines and nor metanephrines. It's the most sensitive test. Um, the urine catecholamines, as we said earlier, usually we don't bother doing them at all. And if you have compelling clinical history or um, biochemical results, then you can start looking again at doing some imaging. The treatment is to control the blood pressure by starting off with alpha blockers and then beta blockers. So you want to avoid unopposed beta blockers. Yeah, and this was a this we talked about this I think in the physiology podcast, but I thought it's just a nice way to tie it all together. That when you think about what beta agonist beta receptors do, um, so in the peripheral vasculature, when you agonize beta receptors, you cause peripheral vasodilation, which is sort of a sympathetic response. You vasodilate, you increase your heart rate, um, you increase your you bronchodilate as well, you inhale more, you just become a, a faster, stronger human being. So if you block the beta receptors in the peripheral vasculature you actually cause, prevent that vasodilation 
but alpha blockers, uh, the alpha agonism, which is also a, um, a reaction to catecholamines or to sympathetic drive, are still allowed to keep going. And that they cause tightening of the blood vessels. And so if you stop that beta agonism that's loosening up the blood vessels and have only the alpha agonism that's tightening up the blood vessels, the hypertension can get even worse. So, you know, if you, you know, trying to be helpful, give someone metoprolol when they have... Um, have a fear chromocytoma with hypertension, you can actually make the hypertension worse and precipitate critical or hypertensive emergency. That's it. So you're wanting to avoid unopposed beta blockade, but it's fine to give beta blockers once the blood pressure has been adequately controlled with alpha blockers. The classic one we use here is phenoxybenzamine. The ultimate goal though is to just take the tumor out. So you can't do that until they're medically managed. And often this is a really challenging time where the patient needs to be on lots and lots of medications to bring that blood pressure down. And they generally feel absolutely awful in that time. So this is not something, generally not something done by general practitioners or, or general physicians. It's definitely a specialist endocrine issue if you do have access to an endocrinologist. Cool. Um, so, and then the last one I think we talk about is for a secondary cause of hypertension. The last thing we'll talk about, as always, at the end of our podcast, I congratulate you for staying this this far long. Um, <laughs> is renal artery stenosis. So, I mean, as described, this is a stenosis, stenosis of the renal artery um, that activates the RAS system. Because remember, the kidneys are really crucial in uh, regulating blood pressure. And one of the ways they do this is by sensing the amount of perfusion they're getting, using that as a surrogate for working out whether the blood pressure is high or low. So if you have a stenosis, we all remember, of course, that after a stenosis, pressure is low. And then prior to a stenosis, um, pre-stenosis, pressure is high. So after the stenosis, the kidney's sensing just low pressure coming towards it. It starts to think, okay, well, I need to bump up the blood pressure here. That's one of the levers I can pull, one of the things I control, and starts to bump up the blood pressure. But nothing changes because there's still a stenosis at the kidney. And so it bumps up the blood pressure more and more and more, and ultimately you can have someone who has hypertension. Now, renal artery stenosis is interesting because it's got two categories or two big groups of patients within it, which are what, Beck? Uh, females and males. <laughs> yeah, yeah, fair enough. That's probably a reasonable divide. Unilateral and bilateral? Um, yeah, I suppose that is one. I was thinking more along the lines of you have this, you know, these young females, like you said, um, young females with fibromuscular dysplasia, which is sort of a renovascular, sorry, collagen vascular abnormality that causes uh, beating of the renal arteries as well as vascular abnormalities elsewhere, like in the brain, even the coronary arteries. And that can lead to stenosis in the renal arteries. But they don't have atherosclerosis, but your other group of people is people who do have atherosclerosis. And just like they develop atherosclerosis in their coronary arteries or their legs, they develop in their renal arteries. And so these are your typical atherosclerotic risk factor, risk factor patients, you know, probably the predilection for men over 60 years old, smokers, diabetics, high cholesterol, that sort of thing. Um, and so either of these people can have a renal artery stenosis that's functional and causes the kidney to sense a lack of blood coming towards it and bump up the blood pressure in an attempt to help things out. So what do they actually look like clinically? Um, I guess, you know, obviously they have severe or resistant hypertension. Um, sometimes if it's something that's developed over the time, so say, for example, that atherosclerotic person who's now got a tight stenosis in their uh, renal artery, that might represent, and this comes back to what we were talking about before, they've suddenly had blood pressure that was controlled reasonably well, and now it's gone up. 
Um, and so when you're getting that history of blood pressure, you're finding that there was a, an acute increase which could relate to a new stenosis in the renal arteries. Um, and what's that, the, the MCQ, if you're going to get an MCQ question that... Um, MCQ has the word question in it, doesn't it? It's kind of redundant to say MCQ question. If you're going to get an MCQ back that was for renal artery stenosis, what tip do you reckon they drop in the water? Uh, flash pulmonary edema is chucked out there a fair bit. That's true. Um, that one is there. Or a, or a rise in the um, creatinine after an ACE inhibitor started. Yeah. So ACE inhibitors, again, altering your renal perfusion. You've already got this situation where the renal perfusion is low. You start an ACE inhibitor and that causes it even worse. So the renal function gets worse when they start an ACE inhibitor. Now, that doesn't always happen. It depends on the nature of the stenosis and, and whether it's bilateral or unilateral. But that's definitely an MCQ type thing. So either flash pulmonary edema recurrently or a rising creatinine response to ACE inhibitors. And so how do you actually diagnose it? Well, you can do an ultrasound, which is pretty helpful. Um, they can measure the velocities through the renal arteries. It's technically difficult. So, you know, often I'll just get my stethoscope out and listen for renal brewies. <laughs> <laughs> no, I've never done that. Um, so, you know, it is, it is technically difficult though. And they say you need a good technician who's done a lot of them and a radiologist who knows how to report them. Um, but that and can just, be... Uh, if you're the intern putting pen to paper here, or, or hand to keyboard <laughs> ultrasound that you're looking for here not just a renal ultrasound but a, a yes renal doppler. doppler that's right doppler being no i'm not going to do what doppler is um and then <laughs> ct and mri can be used as well to just identify they won't measure the velocities or the functional significance of the stenosis but we'll identify if there is a tight stenosis there and so treatment is really dependent on whether it's unilateral, like Beck was talking about earlier, or bilateral, like Beck was also talking about earlier. Um, so, you know, you can, you know, we love to get in there and stent things. You know, it's the oculostenotic reflex. You see something stenosed, you got to open it up. Um, and so you can, stent, you can stent people who have unilateral disease and a high likelihood of benefiting. And that really constitutes people who haven't had this going on for a long time. So they haven't already sort of killed off that kidney because once that kidney's sort of died off from low blood supply and hypertensive damage, you know, whatever, um, you're, you know, revascularizing, it's probably not going to reset that problem that they've sort of, that pattern they've gotten into. It's um, not something that's um, going to be fixed and then fix the whole problem. Yeah. <laughs> the other way to say what you just said there you go uh, <laughs> um but if you're going to use medical therapy it does actually mean ras blockade because you remember despite that bump in creatinine that can sometimes happen this is a renally mediated phenomenon so renin in the first step of the ras blockade is is implicated here and so you want to try and um, counteract that with an ace inhibitor and arb or spironolactone obviously cautiously watching the renal function so that was our whirlwind tour, three-part tour of hypertension. Um, you know, I think after this, for all intents and purposes, you should keep just saying, do you have high blood pressure and writing hypertension history and move on? But, you know, if you did ever want to do a dive a bit deeper, HDN, don't, yeah, don't waste that many letters on it when you put hand to keyboard. Um, but hopefully this is illuminating and will help you have a more structured approach to, um, to hypertension in the future. Yeah, so I think the key points are... Hon was not a Nazi. Christian Doppler is an Austrian physicist who described the phenomenon in 1842. Um, no, but in all honesty, the, the key points are measure the blood pressure properly, use the right size cuff, do all the things that we talked about earlier. Um, think about uh, what has caused the hypertension as well as whether it is complicated 
and guide your treatments and your investigations to those clinical concerns. That's right. Yeah. So um, let us know if you enjoyed this podcast and uh, hopefully we'll try and do some more. Although increasingly it seems like despite our thoughts, uh, life isn't getting less busy, but more busy as time goes on, but we really do enjoy doing them and we enjoy hearing from all of you uh, through the Facebook page or however else. So yeah, please reach out. Okay. Thanks very much. That was great. Bye. Bye.